know, my mother said, you know, there's value and power in your imagination and in your hands and in the stories that you tell and in bringing and giving life and breath and, and bringing into like the physical realm ideas from your imagination. Black creativity is unstoppable. The Studio Noise Podcast takes you into the studio with Black artists and creatives making the art that moves the culture. You get to feel all the inspiration, technique, and passion behind the people making paintings, making sculptures, making prints, making noise. It's the Studio Noise Podcast with your host, Jamal Barber. It's the noise. Yes, it's your boy, Jay Barber. I never want to leave you uninspired. So while I'm away giving my TED Talk at Wake Forest University, I'm going to hit you with this rewind episode, replay episode, flashback. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not quite sure what to call it. Don't do this often. Uh, but it's a throwback to a conversation I had with one of my personal all-time favorite artists. Way back in season five, that would be the one and only Vanessa German. Since that interview, she's continued to be as amazing as ever. It's like she's covered with magic dust <laughs> no, she's she's pretty incredible yo she was one of the recipients of the 27th annual hans award and with another fantastic artist colleen smith wanna, might want to try to get colleen on the podcast that would be awesome this award recognizes outstanding contributions to the arts the economy and the environment established in 1993 to honor senator john hines the six recipients receive two hundred and fifty thousand dollars whoa Wait a minute. God. <laughs> oh, my goodness. $250,000. And this is an award. I'm going to be honest with you. I've never heard of it. It's, it's one of those like amazing awards. Like people know about the MacArthur Grant and, and big stuff like that. But man, this is this is something special right here. I can only imagine how she's putting this to work for what she got to do. So she got so much spirit inside of her. So much to say. I just. I can't imagine it. God, <laughs> get, 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 drop, drop your boy $200. <laughs> $250, Jesus. <laughs> yes. And so she's also been included in the monument lab that's reimagining monuments as dynamic and defined by their meaning. So they're doing different presentations. So this exhibition pulling together. It will be on the National Mall in the fall 2023. And that includes Vanessa Germans, Derek Adams, Paul Ramirez Jones, Tiffany Chung, and a couple of more artists. But man, it is fantastic. She's on a roll. Not to mention her recent show at the Montclair Art Museum. Vanessa German, please imagine all the things I cannot say. Uh, she's just, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's so inspiring. She's on like the next next level not even like nothing that you can get to like you got to be like a certain type of person like when her name come in the air like it's phenomenal uh what she's been able to do and how she does it so it's always inspiring to see that kind of thing i love talking with her and this is one of my all-time favorite interviews and just to see artists op operating at this height it's just uh, it's just wonderful i i love it so i hope you enjoy it too it's studio noise back at you noise with a z the voice of black art coming at you. Of course, we've teamed up with the home of black art, black art in America. On March 4th from 2 to 4 p.m., we got art collector and patron Ashley Lee hosting a collector's talk, collecting contemporary black art 
right there at the Buy Gallery. That's 1802 Connolly Drive, Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, that goes along with the two shows that they have going on. Her Voice Sings and If Only the Patchwork Could Talk. Celebrating Black History Month and Women's History Month, Her Voice Sings showcases a range of expression from Black women artists, including painting, mixed media, textiles, sculptures, quilts, uh, all of that. I went to the opening earlier today and it's just a fantastic show. You know, we take it for granted how many black women artists are out there like really working and redefining the craft with all these different expressions. Particularly stood out to me. Gwendolyn Brooks was amazing inside of it. We had my girl, my girl, Studio Noise fam, Phyllis Stevens in the show. So many, so, so many great artists that you got to go check it out. There are more events coming up. So make sure you check the schedule. Go to blackartinamerica.com to check all of this good stuff out. And so right after the break, we're coming back, hit you with a flashback episode, but it's full of jewels. You're guaranteed to enjoy it. Your boy be back from the TED Talk. I'll tell you how you can check it out. And more exciting news to see your boy on MTV and the Smithsonian Channel. <laughs> like good stuff. I'll let you know about it. It's got it coming up. But after the break, we got the one and only Vanessa German. Tune in, be inspired. It's the noise. Yes. Hey everybody, this is Bisa Butler and you are listening to Studio Noise Podcast. All right, it's your boy Jay Barber back with more Studio Noise. I'm so grateful and honored to be having this conversation with one of my all-time favorite artists, Miss Vanessa German. Welcome to the Studio Noise Podcast. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for uh, for letting me know that I'm one of your favorite artists. That's an honor. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, your work is like extremely powerful. You're such pro- a prolific artist. Oh, for those people that don't know, that should know, this is Vanessa German. She calls herself citizen artist, and I love that title. Uh, she's a sculptor. She's a performance artist. To me, she's a very uh, empathic person in the way that you practice art and talk about it and, and make it and the ideas you express. So uh, I think this is going to be a great conversation. Uh, the one thing that always hard for me when I talk to like these kind of legendary artists like yourself is, uh, you know, the scope of your work is so wide and broad. It's hard to think of a way to get into it. Right. And how do I enter it? And so I reference back to an Instagram video that you did uh, around Mother's Day when you talk about your mother and you said like a lot of powerful stuff that resonated with me a lot It's it's rare to be able to express feeling in the way that you do with the, your words and your tone and your, your, the empathy in which you speak about people. And so you said your, your mother's body held so much information. I love that. And you talked about how she was a quilter and she taught you all these things and gave you kind of the gifts of art, gave you the living tools of making, as you said. So let me know a little bit about your mother and how your childhood kind of guided you into the way that you process your art now? My mother's name was Sandra Keat German, and she was born in 1948 in Louisiana. Um, She was raised by her mother and her father. She was a very, very light-skinned black woman, which was 
a real line that ran through her life the way that she did with that and how she raised us um, given the things that she saw and felt and experienced in the world as a very light-skinned black woman in the South and up then into the North, past Chicago and into Milwaukee, where she um, spent some of her um, formational years. Um, my mother was a genius, so she had a brilliant, like she had a genius level IQ, and she um, she was a reader, and she made us readers, and she, I grew up knowing my mother as a sewer. My mother made our clothes and she made clothes for other people and she did costumes on Broadway and she did costumes for all my school plays. And in probably when I was like eight, nine, ten years old, she started getting into wearable art and then quilting. And uh, but for from the time that I knew language, my mother um, we, we all made things together. That was one of the ways that was like the approved ways that we could spend our time growing up in mid city Los Angeles in the eighties was not to actually play outside, but was to be in our backyard building things or in the living room or dining room, making stories and building things and always gluing stuff together and taking things apart and, um, making little plays and musicals and singing songs and not playing outside. <laughs> um, and so I always, there was not a time that I didn't understand that you make things as part of your life. That being alive is making things and eating things and going places and being in relationships, but making things is a part of all of that. And I watched my mother, um, I watched my mother change, you know, I, I, I know that it wasn't easy for her to be our mother and it wasn't easy for her to find a great breath of freedom in her body mm. on this land as a black woman. And I think that, you know, to be perfectly honest, I think that there was a lot of times that my mother was the smartest person in any room mm. and that, that like I could see her contend with limitation um, and and watch the way that she moved. And so my mother became more and more of a fine artist and a craft person. As I grew up, I watched her go from just having a sewing machine in one room to crafting an entire studio out of our attic and adding multiple tools and lots more materials to her work and then protecting that space. Um, protecting all of her materials and teaching us what we needed to know so that we could also protect her materials from our own curiosity and our own sort of sloppy assemblage, collage, making of everything in our house. Right. So my mother was really, um, she was very focused as an artist and as a quilt maker. And um, we were a big part of that, but, she also, um, you know, she. my mother grew up with a mom who had, um, who was schizophrenic and was often committed back when they still had state hospitals. So, like, my mother used, my, I'm sure that so much of my mother's process time in her studio was really 
like healing and doing the secret work that it took to hold herself and her body and her mind and her spirit together. So all of that information is in my mother's book, it's in her body. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people know my mom and they love my mom and my mother is the reason that they're soldiers and that they do things. And I really want to emphasize that my mother was a whole person. And so she was creative and stunning and brave. And she grew up in America during Jim Crow, right. which means she had Jim Crow survival genes. She had, she grew up in a time when everything around her told her to shrink herself just to survive, that she needed to be both shrunken and exceptional simultaneously. So she was, um, you know, there were times my mother could be vicious. Mm. And I understand that she lived in a world that, that she lived in a world that sanded parts of her tenderness into like bone sharp places of viciousness in that how she came up. I think that's uh, one of the uh, underreported legacies of, of Jim Crow is the way that it did kind of shape black genius in, in the way that you're describing. It stunted it and frustrated it and pushed it into places where it didn't want to go, where it had to survive. I think that's a, that's a, a powerful message. Yeah, it is uh, something that... It is something that believing in the power of love and investigating through all of my relationships what forgiveness is and what healing is and what compassion, what a full sphere of compassion really is, um, that is something that I came up in my investigations of love and compassion, thinking about my parents, you know, thinking about what it was to grow up being told to be literally exceptional but also to be small, to be shrunken on the bus and to not look at people and to move a certain way, you know, in at, at these extremes while also enduring a casual, malicious, nasty, ordinary brutality on right. a daily basis. Just the brutal- and, and when I say like ordinary brutality, and that language might sound like hyperbolic and like, and over the top, but it is a brutal act every day to have your humanity diminished, to not be able to rise to the occasion of your living and of your life and to inhabit your humanity with a full inhalation of the lungs of your being. That's cruel and it's a brutal thing. And at some point, nobody has to, you know, shove you into that place because, uh, it becomes an ecosystem that you ingest and it's in your cells and in your body and you can hold yourself. Uh, you can, you know, you can only sip, you, you can put yourself in a situation where you're only sipping at the breath of your humanity because it becomes so much a part of what it takes to survive. And so for me to understand what forgiveness and compassion, for me to actually know more about what love is, I had to start looking at what happened to my parents when they were children and could they do and did they believe that they could fly and who held them when they did not feel safe and when they didn't feel safe where they held did somebody say hey next time you better run faster next time you better like up quicker and were they you know were they just ever told that what 
was happening to them directly was wrong or that they needed to take that into their survival toolkit and keep it moving, which is, you know, I think it's possible to do both. But I really had to look at how the world and the hearts of the world changed my, made my parents who they were. Right, right. And especially like here in the South, I grew up uh, in North Carolina. Now I'm in Atlanta. But it's always this kind of thing, this underlying weight of incidental death like that I call it, where um, you could possibly be hurt or killed simply by looking a white man in the face or something like that. Like, but not even you, somebody you knew could have done it. And now you have to pay for it. So it was always kind of this huge pressure of of existing, like you said, in wanting to be yeah. in fullness, knowing that you have power and intelligence and these ideas and um, this urge to make and not being able to do it. I think that frustrates uh, and frustrated a lot of people in the generation. That's why it's so amazing that people actually did it. Right. So all the people that we look up to and read about in books, their stories break through and have power because they did persevere and somehow managed to get um, living their glory. Yes. Yes. And so it makes me think about you and the effect that it had on you growing up. And just by seeing your videos on Instagram where you're in the garden talking to people, which I love, I, I got to say that right away. What did that do to you as a child seeing it? And how did that form the kind of early part of your practice? Um, when you say seeing it, what does that mean? I'm, uh, well, I'm witnessing her transformation as you describe it and seeing the products that came from a studio, seeing the process of her creating her own space, um, training you all to eat. How many brothers and sisters do you have? There's five of us total. There's five kids. Okay. Yeah. So training you and your brothers and sisters to respect her space and then seeing herself make time to create these things and possibly seeing your interpretation of the feelings that you think she had from making those things. Like how did, did that in, in, all, in any part inform what you do now? I, I mean, it definitely informed what I do now, but as a little girl, you know, we were afraid of our parents. Mm. We, um, we had, uh, we were a unit as kids and we had a lot of, like, we would have kid meetings. We would all meet up in one bedroom and talk about our parents because we could see, even as children, that they were they contained multitudes mm -hmm. and that we needed to understand like one of the conversations we had a lot when we were kids was that, um, our, that we did not come with instruction manuals as children, that when my mother, my parents had us, that they were, um, they became parents and they learned how to parent through us. They didn't take some, you know, like, 20 years of education or get a PhD in parenting and then have kids. But there's this way that we understood and had to as children that our parents were figuring things out and they were um, not always right. And so what my mother, the way watched what my mother did and how she moved in the world and crafted a practice for herself, what that really taught us was, um, and the way that she raised us inside of that 
as creative people, as children who make things on purpose, not just as hobbies and as arts and crafts, which are valuable and in, in whole ingredients in a, in a whole human life. But my mother really showed us um, as whole human beings and not just as her kids, but she taught us that there's power in our internal lives and that we did not need to externalize a lot of our needs and that that was a trick that the world would um, drag us into to convince us that we um, needed to live by rules that were outside of our bodies and outside of our hearts and that we would then never sort of measure up to these ideas of success and beauty that were outside or just any things external. My mother said, you know, you have there's value and power in your imagination and in your hands and in the stories that you tell and in bringing um, and giving life and breath and and bringing into like the physical realm ideas from your imagination. So that's the if I could distill it, it is that way that my mother and watching her in her life and the way that she raised us, she taught us and she showed us and she never separated us from our power and from our power as whole human beings, not just as children, as black folks, or, you know, my mother made sure we knew we were powerful. And uh, as a, you know, as an adult, I understand more what it took for a woman with five kids to make a space for herself in the house and to protect her materials and to have a door on that place that she could close and to demand respect for that and do the best that she could to give all the time that she needed to it. And I understood as a kid that my mom was better, that she was nicer to us, that she was just better after she had been in that room. Mm. Mm. Y'all were some very insightful kids. Like having meetings and stuff like that is amazing. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, just a, one of the ways that we as children um, do process the world. And I think people learn their parents in the, in the same way that you describe um, in different ways. In a lot of ways, um, I still see after I had my son and my daughter trying to figure out a way to give them understanding of me in the same way through art and, and through the way that I make art and the way that I engage with it. That's a, that's a very interesting thing that you, that you're spoken about. Yeah. There is something, I'm not a parent, but hearing you say that makes me think about um, the power of moving forth creatively and with intention to let your children know who you are and how you live. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because because I consider it so central to who I am. Like, so if they if they don't get that part, then they wouldn't understand me in the same way that my wife, um, my wife gives me space to make, too. And in the same way. And it's um, it's a blessing to be be able to do it and to have the privilege to uh, go in my basement and make um, as I see fit. So I, I appreciate you telling that story about your mother who was doing it. With, with five kids or five kids in my family. So I, I know the loudness, the sound of it, right? The sound of five kids living in a space, um, trying to make it and we're all trying to make it and work. So it means a lot 
to hear that story um, to me. So as we move on and you talk a little bit about power, obviously um, you're very known for your power figures. But give me a sense of when did you start to process the power of objects? I, I, my mother was a collector. My mother had a really great eye. And I grew up in a house where um, my mother had collected objects. And there was, if you look at any person's collection, the collection alone is telling you so much about the person's eye and their relationship to um, the world and parts of the world where different objects come from and their relationship to design. And my mother had an amazing eye and, you know, my father didn't. And so my it was, I grew up really fascinated by these objects that were considered precious by my mother, the things that were in behind glass and cabinets and the things that were up so high so we couldn't get them because my father said that our nickname for all of the kids when we were growing up was break up, mess up, tear up. And he would be like, that's just what he would call us, break up, mess up, tear up. There were five of us. And so there, I learned a lot from the ways that my mother held preciousness in, in the objects that she collected. So I have a lot of those objects too. Like I, they, they, as a child, my mother had this like Iranian bird that was carved out of brass and metal and it was a music box and I've never seen anything like it. And I'm a collector. I buy, I go to, you know, antique shops around America and Europe and I'm always looking at things and I've never seen another bird like this but as a little girl I would pick it up and I would look at the way that it was made and I would look at the detail in the carving and I would look to see if there were any quote-unquote mistakes in it and I would look to see what it was and I would ask myself um, really with like great internal intensity why am I drawn to this object what is it about the shape of this the shape of this wing back into the curve of the skull, into the beak of this bird. Why am I drawn to this? Why can't I stop looking at it and letting my hand over it? And the same with um, my mother had this doll, this Russian doll that was like done up in all this beaded velvet. And um, she never let us touch it when we were kids. And I have it now. And I think about how that aesthetic of that of embellishment and accumulation and the weight of luxury on a garment is so informed by these precious objects that my mother had when I was a kid and even into the black Madonnas and the form of like the nudes. My mother had nude sculptures and paintings of nudes and I would look at, I would, there were things I was so drawn to and I really started to investigate um, in my internal world as a child. Why do I love this? Why am I drawn to this? Is this love? Can I love this object? Mm. What is it telling me? What is, and like setting three different objects in front of me being like, why don't I care about those two? What is it about those two that mean nothing to me? Mm. Why is it this one that is everything? Why is it this one that I know if I steal anything from this house, it will be this thing. You know, just I was really driven like that and developed an eye for 
Well, what I really developed, well, that was my first development of my own frequency of yes, the frequency of rightness that meets my exact humanity in my, in this place, in this time, that way that I look at something and I am drawn to it and it is drawn to me. There are times when I see objects and I come in contact with objects and I know that it is almost like I have seen the thing before and I'm just waiting to get it again. It's almost like it's coming back around again and I find things and like I can, I get a feeling, I get this pressure inside of my body when it's time for me to go to a certain like antique flea market place. And I know that I'm just going for one reason. I can walk around for 45 minutes and find some other little things and put my eye on the one thing that I was supposed to come there to get. And it is like the thing called me. And it came. And I know that I'm going to use it in the sculpture. Like, I don't really... I have objects in my house, but most of them, um, most of the objects that I collect are not so super precious that I can't use them in my work. Mm. But for me, I am experiencing something about the maker and the object. I'm experiencing... I'm experiencing dimensional life in the object, the way that the object has a life and a story and a history and the uh, the uh, material of origin has a life and a story and a history. So I'm really experiencing dimensions of vitality and dimensions of consciousness even in the objects that I collect and in the objects that I am drawn to. I'm drawn to them for their soul. And for me, soul is dimensional. For me, soul is a 30-layer cake of, you know, simultaneity of time and material and earth and all of these different ingredients that make up the substance of soul. And that is really what I came to in understanding the draw and the um, possession obsession that I have with different objects. It is their soul. And there's something in there then, Jamal, that is mysterious. There's something in that place of object and soul that has no language. It is just an experience. It is the isness that that it is. Right. It is the isness of the object. Right, right. And um I think your work, um I don't I'm sure you have studied like folk artists before, but I think of it in terms of you you know you may I'm sure you know Mr. Imagination who made a lot of stuff out of bottle caps in in the same way that he took these objects that perhaps didn't have as much of a story, like wasn't at what was not were not as touched as some of the things that you say or loved on or held in regard. They were bottle caps, but he assembled them and put them together in the multitude and his care and crafting gave it more meaning. Like somehow, like, do you do you have a sense of that in your work as you like you said, put these three objects together, they start to tell not just their story, but your story, the story that you're crafting and the messages that you're putting out about blackness or black life or the collective. Uh, I think of a piece like the Joy Machine, Uh, Joy Machine number three, kick, push. I want to say the whole title, (laughs) Joy Machine number three, kick, push, ring the alarm, fly. where you have like one of your power figures with a trumpet head riding a skateboard with a neon sign, like are, are all these things, do they craft a narrative for you or, or how are you arriving at that point? So narrative is present in everything. You know, they, they're, there's a saying that makes real sense to me that says the universe is made of stories. 
and the future belongs to the next story. So story is everywhere. Right. Um, it is in every layer of the ingredient of making material gathering process. All of it is active with story. And there's a place of surrender to that where I do not do any work to um, say what is not going to be available because what's not available is not available. So I don't, I don't have to um, do any extra work to, um, I don't, I, I don't have to do any extra machinations in my practice or process around that because, so I'll move on. But in that work particularly, and in the ways that I am a citizen artist, and for me, there is a great deal of my being that is invested and strives forward with the language of service and the language then and the actions of service and love as a service and protection as service and of vulnerability even as service. And so in my artwork, uh, so as a citizen artist and making power figures that I am imbuing with um, conceptual magic and spiritual magic and, um, and many layers of information so that the work can be powerful and can do the work that it needs to be done. I am... Um, really creating every work of art as a dimensional service. So kick, push, kick, push, the joy machine, that the same one, and, it, and it's sort of blaring out this form, this bounded fabric form. That work is a work that is sort of defying the... There, when I, as a little black girl in Los Angeles, there were all these things that people told me that black girls didn't do and riding skateboards was one of them. Mm. And so there's a way that everything in that work is an ingredient towards true freedom. It is an ingredient towards true joy. And so even the figure is uh, on a skateboard and the kick push like the Lupe Fiesta song and that it is doing a thing that I was told black girls do not do, but the neon sign is screaming run. And there's a way that when I was a child, along with people telling me the things that black girls didn't do, there was a way that my mother really had to try to teach us because there were four girls in the family, how to know when people meant you harm, even if they were smiling in your face, like how to know when to run even if it's somebody is asking you to pet their puppy in the front seat of their car and you want to really pet the puppy, like how to really discern in an instinctive level when it's time to go and when people are being harmed. And so there's this way that my mother empowered us to trust our instincts. And in that work, um, kick, push, kick, push, it is doing all of this work around protecting the body and protecting the spirit, protecting the imagination into a place of expansive freedom and joy. So it is not 
like there every once in a while somebody sees me at one of my shows and they'll ask me about one of my works and I'll read the entire work to them, which means I basically perform the work and I can go through every single ingredient of the work that is both visible, the visible media and the invisible media. Mm -hmm. So I'll talk about the physical work and the secret work. And inside of that experience, uh, there is the understanding that that work has work to do and it is doing the work by dint of existing. It is doing the work every time eyes are laid on the work and it is doing the work um, of making the future of more work. For me, all of the work is very, like, they're all an entire life. And how do you talk about an entire life, right? Right, yeah, yeah. On March 4th, collecting contemporary black art and art collectors talk, Black Art America welcomes Ashley Lee Esquire, art collector and Black Art America patron, to host a conversation with other active collectors about collecting contemporary black art with emerging collectors in mind. This program is part of Bayer's Her Voice Scenes and If Only the Patchwork Could Talk Women's History Month exhibition. Remember, Black Art in America is a place where you can buy and learn about art. Black Art in America Gallery and Sculpture Garden is a very unique arts experience located at 1802 Connolly Drive, East Point, Georgia, just three miles from the Atlanta airport. If you can't make it in person, it's just a click away online at blackartamerica.com. Check it out. Hi everyone, this is Carla J. Harris. I am an artist and a curator based in Los Angeles, California, and you are listening to Studio Noise. Yeah, because it's um, the way you describe it and the way you you knowing about your life is is a lived experience like and it, and it all like comes together in kind of these singular moments when you when you do get the time and space to simply create right to simply be and simply have these uh expressions um i see the i see the theme of community in your work a lot especially as you start to put the power figures together i think of the parade of women against the myth of uncertainty the, the myth of certainty or how not to dive lies it's all these multiple figures kind of in this uh, procession, right? Describe uh, how you think and how you conceive of the work in that way. So I used to make uh, single objects. I used to make uh, like single discrete, like one object sculptures. And now I make entire um, communities of figures. So I'm working on, you know, like eight figures or five figures at a time in the studio and they're in relationship with one another and I'm, you know, pushing material from one into another and pushing beyond the boundaries of that material. And I'm um, really able to expand my ideas as an artist and also expand 
into that realm of love and into the realm of dimensional and embodied and energetic power in the making because I stay in that sort of ecosystem of making and contemplating on, uh, you know, a few ingredients of power and loving that are going into a body of work. So the parade of women, that's the show that is at the new, was at the museum of American glass, right? That's the yeah. show. Well, one, so that's just a really unique opportunity to be, um, a resident artist at a glass factory that when you're working with expert craft people and they really just want to give you what you want and they want to have, um, a really, uh, a sort of experience that is outside of the ordinary of their practice. So one, you're in a magical space where you have two artists, two like, myself as an artist and a group of artists in a glass factory who really want to do different things and new things and which means that you're surrounded by yes people. You're surrounded by people who are like, yes, let's try that. Let's try that. Let's try that. So the energy of that is um, it's like the difference between a toy train and a bullet train. You just, mm. there's so much go, go, go there. So that energy was present. And it is um, this, one of the ideas that it is alive inside of my work is this thing about the simultaneity of time, that the past, present, and the future are active and um, applying pressure on one another constantly. And so inside of that um, procession of figures, inside of that installation, the first figure leads with um, this holding it's a figure on a skateboard and it's holding a figure in its arms that is prone. It looks like it's, it looks like a pieta on a skateboard. And there's, that is the leading figure. And then it's surrounded by figures that are weeping and they go from these like weeping blue figures to these abundant over the top, overflowing the joyful figures that are, um, being led by uh, by strings, they're being led by figures that are holding birds, and the birds are sort of tethered to the figures, and they're sort of leading them forward. And it's this idea of one aesthetically that of aesthetic arrest of like coming into the space of the installation and being sort of knocked back off of your feet by this driving force of like really energetic sculpture coming directly at you. So when that show was at the museum, the museum director said that they were, that they really wanted to put a GoPro in the corner and just film people coming in the room because for how, for how, you know, just to catch all these visuals of people being like, Oh my God, Oh my God, Oh my God, coming into this room. But there's this also idea that there are, all there that we are surrounded by all of these the energy of our ancestors we're surrounded by this entire army of ancestors and prayers and even um like i think about just being an earthling and even the spirit of the earth and trees and plants and seeds and gardens this sort of energy that is pushing us forward into daily reckoning with justice 
And so that work is that push, is that parade. So it's like this idea, these ideas about lies and like living lies and being afraid of uncertainty when, you know, Octavia Butler says, God has changed everything you touch, you change everything you change, changes you, God has changed. The only lasting truth is change. And so though each individual figure in there is doing something different, it's there for a different purpose and it is a power figure of a certain vehicle and they all have, um, they all have something to do and they're active by dint of the fact that they're in the world, that they exist and that they are seen. And I, so one of the things about having gone from making single discrete figures to making entire community of figures is, um, I was really inspired by the Terracotta Army. And, right. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, and also by the Chiknan Hot quote, the Buddhist Chiknan Hot, the quote that says, "The um, I'm paraphrasing, but the next great revolutionary leader will not be a single individual, but it will be an entire community of people." Right, and I I feel that completely. Like I love like listening to you like talk about your work and hearing it because it reinforces how it's amazing how you can get to know an artist so much if you take the time to look and study their work, right? And so a lot of what you're saying is reinforcing how I feel when I see it. You had a couple of pieces here at the um, Spelman Museum down in Atlanta for a show and, you know, getting to see it and walk around with it and live with it and see all the little details from top to bottom uh, that you put into the work, I think is, is something to be said for that type of craft, right? How do you approach the idea of crafting your work and making these things and putting them together is it like a carefully constructed thing or is it just kind of an a energy or tornado comes through and this thing whips up um, from all the objects around you? It's different. It depends on so many different things, but I've thrown things together before and it doesn't always go well. Like there is a, um, the presence of the, um, like the intellectual capacity to engineer objects that stay together. Mm -hmm. And that requires time, you know, that requires, you know, understanding of the internal structures of sculptures, which I've really come to just by trial and error. Because as a self-taught artist, I am learning every, every, every artwork, everything is learning and everything is teaching me. So I'm always, um, gathering up I'm like I'm always earning my continual PhD in my own practice right so the work is I'm working on several different pieces at once and there is that that really careful process of engineering the internal structure of the work and then there's there is an instinctive process there you know and so much power and instinctive process where I'm listening to the objects and I'm looking at the objects and I know that since I've collected all these objects, I know the vulnerabilities in the objects. I know how to attach objects to things using um, so many different kinds of different adhesives and different ways of attaching a variety of different materials to structures. But it is sometimes the work is as careful and as articulate as an ancient prayer, mm. like a prayer that has been prayed the same way for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. It comes 
that way. And there are times that there are times that I can be in a really um, like the volume of the rightness of a of a single work flows so smoothly that it all just will come to me. That I'll pull the objects and I'll know where they're going to go. I'll know that they're important. I'll know their juxtaposition to other objects on the piece. And there are times when that doesn't happen at all. There are times that I have to fight for the work. I have to fight against my own tiredness. I have to fight against the trauma. I have to fight against distraction. My cell phone ringing, Instagram, anything. And just, it can be like so painful sometimes when I have to fight for every little element of the work to find its rightness, which is really just going to shelves and shelves of objects and putting objects next to each other on the work and moving them around and moving them back and forth and really sometimes wanting to go so fast, but the work is demanding my attentive patience and focus on every little detail. And that what I have learned to do, no matter what kind of energy is um, that I'm experiencing in any different making of an object, I've learned to give myself grace with it, to mm, not add yeah. the other layer of anxiety of this should be going faster, I should be in the flow, it shouldn't be this hard, or this is too easy, like just not giving myself the grace of being like, I'm here with my body and I commit myself to the truth in my practice and I commit myself to love this work and I commit myself to love myself in this practice and I am right here with my body. And that's just the grace of it and saying that I'm working for truth. Yeah, and I think that's a, a great note for people to hear. Um, a lot of um, emerging artists listen to this podcast as a way to kind of get the knowledge and information from people they never get to encounter. But it's part of the, the process of creation is exactly what you're talking about, is giving yourself grace to go through all the struggle of it. Because the struggle is what makes the work, uh, what makes the, the materials transform into a work of art, right? It'll get you to that point. Like somehow, do you have the same struggle when you're um, switching to performance um, versus the sculptural stuff and and your paintings, too, because you have a, a beautiful series of Black Madonna painting collages, mixed media works. I don't know how you want to describe them. Um, how do I want to describe the Black Madonnas or the painting? Yeah, the Black Madonnas. Okay, so I paint more than Black Madonnas, but specifically the Black Madonnas, my mother made the first Black Madonna that I ever saw on a quilt called Behold We Are the Second Stars. But I grew up in a in the house with an image of a woman that always felt like the Black Madonna to me. It was the bust of a the, of a Black woman that was sitting in a certain way, like I've seen the Black Madonna pose before. And so when my mom had cancer and I was going to the hospital often and just those hours, there's eight hours in the cancer center, 16 hours, it's just like all this time in waiting rooms and in hospitals and in the cancer center, I started to bring paint with me and a few paintbrushes and I would just start painting on anything. So I have a series of black Madonnas that are done on the paper towels from the waiting room in the bathroom of the ER, from the police station, toilet paper, wow. Kleenex, and 
I real and I was painting what is for me a really sacred healing object on things that were casually, easily disposable, and re- really recognize recognizing and making this work as a reckoning with the ways that I have been. I live in a world that has told me so many different ways and through many different um, highways that I'm less valuable, that I'm not valuable, that I'm worthless. And so to put the mother of all creativity, the most sacred mother of all creativity on painting it on toilet paper and painting it on a paper towel from, you know, an emergency room bathroom and really looking at the sort of ordinary sacredness and also looking at how much sacredness and how much holiness and how much, you know, brilliance and value we just throw away. It's just thrown away, whether it's the idea that you lock people up forever and, you know, that there's still right, yeah. solitary confinement and that there's just people who you can that it's been said that they're just less valuable because they live on the other side of a border or something. And just I, making those works as a reckoning, you know, these holy objects to affirm the life and the value and the brilliance and the, the holiness all of us is open. Um, but doing that as a prayer and as a meditation for myself while I was oftentimes just waiting in the hospital for my mom to finish chemotherapy or for whatever, you know, Dying of cancer is a long process, and so all of those things were I was in a lot of places with those black Madonnas. Oh no, I I completely understand. My uncle uh, passed from cancer too. Um, it makes me think of uh, we interviewed uh, Dr. Christina Cleveland. She wrote a book called um, "Christ Our Black Mother Speaks," and in it, she was talking about the history of the Black Madonna. And when I asked her why, what the the black Madonna figures mean, she described that it means that in the universe that seems to be against you, that there is an ultimate power that is there for you, like looking out for you and kind of that same spiritual sacredness that you talked about, um, reimagining a spiritual system that values blackness because it comes from blackness, right? I mean, it, I just wanted to, to throw that out because your your figures make me think about that. And they're beautiful paintings. And so as you engage with the paintings, that I, I see the, where those come from. Um, your performance pieces versus the sculpture versus the paintings. How do you know when to switch between those mediums? Like what, what gives you that urge or is it just reading kind of the universe as you see it? So there is no verses, right? Like I'm just one person feeling and moving and flowing. Like, so there's no competition and there's not comparison really. You, It's like uh, I have two hands and on some of the hands there's sculpture and photography and performance and writing and all the different fingers. And so I write some every day. And there are times when I notice, like, when I'm on my period, I write more, and I write more prolifically, and I can sing better. Mm. Um, And so there's this, honestly, this window of time where I'm like, oh, I'm about to start writing a lot, and I can feel it. And then there are times that I just really understand that it is a way for me to communicate my soul, and I can ask of the words and of the rhythm and of sound to carry 
more information than just even words, you know? So as yeah. a performer, I'm putting, I'm putting layers of, of, of love and magic and a lot of, um, other power into the sound of my voice and into the rhythm and the patterns that I create with sound. And I, um, and what I know is not to ignore the feeling when it comes. Like I don't ignore it. Like mm. sometimes I can hear a line of, I can hear a line. Like it's like I hear, feel it. And I know not to take that for granted. I'll write it down and I'll follow it. And it has something to give me. A lot of times it has something to give me for myself and of myself. And I write in the studio, like I write on the walls of my studio and I don't, I really try not to take for granted hearing words and knowing the power of words and the power of language and sound. And it's the same with any um, ways that I'm expressing, whether it's photography or painting or drawing or assemblage or dance or singing, I pay attention to the inclination and I respect it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I asked that question because simply because I'm a printmaker um, primarily. And as I've been getting my thesis and my MFA down here, been experimenting with painting and it does feel so different. So I was just wondering as you switch between those different mediums, like how does it come? But I, I love that it's more intuitive is what you're describing. It's kind of it's it's all happening and you're letting it happen. Um, and allowing yourself, giving you right back to what you were saying before, the grace to follow all of these things wherever they lead you. Yeah, and understanding that, you know, I'm alive. And so I want to listen and be fully alive. So I'm going to follow the sparks and I'm going to follow and reach to touch that which is calling me to touch it. And it doesn't mean that I, and you know, with the capacity to edit and with the capacity to be deliberate and with the capacity for refinement, not just like everything comes in and everything goes out, but being alive with it and honing it. And I think editing and refinement are lovely, that those are lovely processes. Absolutely. And in, in your years of doing this art and um and kind of doing this work and kind of building your own language almost through your figures and, and how you're processing things, uh, do you think it's giving you a, a different understanding of the world, right? A different understanding of the things that you're looking to express about um, blackness and community and humanity and spirituality even? I'm whole. I'm a whole being. I'm a whole I'm whole. And so art is integral to my wholeness. So mentally, something happens when I'm in the studio and I'm making things and my mind is to myself and I can, you know, tramp through the wilderness of my ideas and the places of my memory and my heart. But there's no not 
there's no not there's no not art there's no not mm. going places there's no not freedom there's no like i'm every day i become more whole more of who i am right and any artwork that i make is becoming it becomes me more and i become more of myself through it and it is right where it is in the world in this time and i'm whole that's a great answer um just the idea that you are so comfortable with the practice right so comfortable with the art and not fighting with it as much as as people do sometimes um that's something to aspire to for everybody that's listening. For me, for for me, I speak for myself. For me, it's something to aspire to because it doesn't always seem as natural. I don't I don't know if natural is the right word either, but it's harder. Some days are harder than others, right? That's that's what I mean. Yeah, some days are harder than others for me too. And there are works of art that I can look at them and I remember how painful it was to go through that. And I learned from it, and I learned that a lot of the pain that I experience in certain specific artworks, I experienced and experienced it because I was in a state of resistance. I was like resisting something. I was resisting giving myself more time to do it. I was, you know, pushing myself in ways that my being was being in resistance to, like, or I needed more rest, or I was trying to... Um, I, there's a phrase that I have to repeat for myself sometimes and it's, there is no one to please and there is no one to impress. And sometimes I go for walks and that's all I say over and over again is there's no one to please and there's no one to impress except of course yourself. Um, but there are times that I can see the pain and the suffering that I had in the single artwork because I was trying to please or express some external force. Right. Yeah. And, um, and, like dealing with those external forces, I think is always a balance that you have to strike. Right. Like I said, I'm doing my thesis work and there's on one hand, such a pressure to make something impressive, right. Magical to, uh, to somebody else other than, other than myself, like in feeling that the work has to be bigger or better or beyond anything I've ever made before. Like this has to be the piece that does all those things, like the culmination of it. And it doesn't always come when you think of it that way, right? When, until you like just sit in the space with your materials and in your sketchbook and let it happen. The letting it happen is what you're describing that I think we need to hold on to a little bit more. Yeah, I think that there are ways of practicing and there are people who practice like architects and engineers. They do all of this research and everything is meticulously planned out and there is art and love in that way of practicing and for me there is great truth and wholeness and mystery and so much wonder and genius in in following like in feeling, following, feeling, and in trusting and moving instinctively and in a place of, and having a revelatory practice where the work is revealed to me in practice and in focus and in, and in the inside of the inside of the inside. 
And I think that the work comes from that there's suffering that lives within constantly comparing people's practices. Right. And I really find that like white supremacy um, rides on a horse of divisiveness and, mm. um, and polarity and saying that this is good and this is bad. And it really, that's a, you know, that's for me where so much suffering lives is in that separation and process and saying, this is what's right. This is what a process is. This is what practices. This is what good is. This is what genius is. And this is how that genius happened. Um, and when I look at the work that some of, you know, I think about how Carrie Mae Weems made the kitchen table series and she said it was just something she had to do. Mm, She had to do it. She said, if she didn't do it, she would not be worth her salt. Didn't know where it was going to go. If it was ever going to hang on a wall anywhere. But she said she had to do it. And so for me and my practice, I'm inside of this for the work that I have to do. I want to keep finding those places where I am so driven and so burned to be alive by a single idea working through the material that it is the just the thrush of being alive and being in that sort of miraculous place of material and making and humanity. That's the place that I want to go. And I don't always get there, but that's what I'm in. That's what I'm in the studio for. Amazing. And so last question, do you, what do you think? Well, not what do you think, but what do you have in mind in store for yourself uh, in your practice in the new year? I'm in the studio right now, and I have a three-year engagement with the Frick Museum. Okay, nice. And one one of the things I'm thinking about is um, something I've always thought about, but I'm really grounding it right now, is this idea of a reckoning. And so I think about the last four years and the election that and the sort of American delusion this idea of delusion and this idea these that I this I this way of America being at our is America at a place with the courage momentum and and sort of bite to reckon with its own story, to have an American reckoning between what and who America says it is and how it is. You know, if I'm thinking about this way of reckoning and and I talk about being an artist, like convicted to service and being of service. And so I'm making these objects and this work right now that I'm considering reckoning work. This Mm. is reckoning work. Work that is a part of the internal, the intimate, the social, the communal, the political reckoning of beings that have a, an Amer, you know, American on their passport, beings that live on American soil, this idea of American reckoning and even a reckoning America to a, to the globe, to a global, um, and in global relationships, but also as uh, to the earth and to the planet, this American reckoning, and rather that 
this intimate reckoning, um, an individual reckoning, that internal reckoning to external reckoning, political, cultural, spiritual reckoning. I'm making these objects for that. These, and I'm, and I'm calling them reckoning objects because they are part of that ingredient that is inhaled into the human body that fuels a reckoning, that is a part of the fuel of reckoning. Because I'm thinking about what artists would have to make right now for us to make a future where justice is centered, Mm. which I know sounds like wildly, mountainously romantic to have a society that centers justice, especially to say that, especially when we're really in such a stew of delusion. There's a stew of delusion around us in America. Like I think white supremacy is delusion. Absolutely. Yeah. To really say like artists, what do we need to make right now? And what is calling at you? What is begging? What is burning at the bone of your artist technology to be made for the reckoning, for reckoning towards a future that is centered on a living justice, on a living justice. And so that was in the studio and I'm thinking, and I'm in this three-year engagement with the Frick around the reckoning because if you're, I think about how there, have you ever, have you seen Black Lives Matter art shows and seen how many like museums and are hiring black curators right, and yeah, like, curators yeah. of colors and it's this thing and I'm like, well, we know it. We that's great. People need to be at the table. People need to be in positions. Like our voices need to be heard. Our ideas, our imaginations need to be forefronted. Right. Right. And I said, even with that. Even with those places, even with that, the reckoning will be decades. It will take decades. Like it will, it's going to take like generations for black folks to build wealth. It's going to take generations to reckon with Native American genocide. It's going to take generations to undo the harm of the justice system, to undo the terrorism and the brutality of mass incarceration. And so what objects do we need to get us through those generations and those decades? What kind of inspiration? What what do we need to be ingesting to endure and to persevere the path that is ahead of us? So I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about what that love is and what that courage is in this new body of work. Oh, I can't wait to see this. <laughs> I, can't, I can't wait to see that. I love it when an artist um, finds their rhythm, right? And you you found just that idea for the moment, I think, is so necessary. Because even we're only beginning to understand the need for a reckoning in the first place, right? Even after all this time, we're only at the surface level of getting to knowing the harm that's been done and acknowledging it. And so... Yeah. So I think, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that reckoning is the next wave of where we need to go. Yeah, bringing up the bones. Exactly. Yeah. Oh man, this has been a great conversation. I I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Uh, you've given me so much to think about, and I, I I say it again, I absolutely love your work. You're one of my favorites. So please keep making, uh, and keep giving us something to think about out here. 
Thank you so much for this time. I appreciate you and I appreciate your audience and I'm really grateful that you're an artist and that you're making the work that you need to make. Thank you so much. And that's it. Another episode of Studio Noise in the Bag. Big shout out to Vanessa German. I hope we all get there. That magic, baby. I love it. Your boy, Jay Barber. I'll be back with more conversation next week. Until then, all my artists out there, look to the sky. <laughs> look at all the big time artists that's out doing it. You one step away, baby. You one piece away. Keep making that noise. Yes. <laughs> it's your boy, Jay Barber. We're going to see you next week. Keep in the studio. Keep making that noise. I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Studio Noise Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please take a second to rate us and write a review to make sure everybody knows about the noise. Follow us on Instagram at Studio Noise Podcast.